Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Okay, here is my uh, question. Okay, first question. Mets, I know you have. Connor, have you read the uh, Harry Potter books? I read the first one a long, long time yeah. ago. Yep. That's okay. doesn't have to be. I am reading them. I've read them before. I'm rereading them now with a Newman um, student. It's been really uh, fun, and we're reading them as one story so we wanted to kind of take on like an epic um story so it's probably i haven't counted but i bet it's over four thousand pages or so to read them all and we're we got like six six done one to um to go and yeah could share more on the idea but it has been very um life-giving and i hope it kind of builds something that would be cool like book club slash just kind of sharing life um opportunities in in the future of reading reading good stories cool stories um but at the end there here's a spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't um read read them but (laughs) dun 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 walter mord is harry potter's father Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, specifically, I just finished the sixth one and Professor Snape kills Professor Dumbledore. And so I wanted, I'm like, I'm trying to think back on, I think it was Dr. Barrett that took us through it. I don't know if it was you, Bisk. Um, but I'm trying to think back on, okay, like, what are the conditions for a war to be just? And then, like, in those parameters, how do you get to the object of the act in a moral act to know if something is morally acceptable mm. or <clears throat> or not? Um, so, honestly, it's just kind of a basic question. If any of you kind of had those to rattle off, I'd be appreciative. Because it, it is cool to think about. And similar to the, the stuff that we were talking about before, the cast was what reminded me a little bit. of. It's kind of just a cool opportunity for an exercise in the complexity of morality of like, Hey, the world is extraordinarily complex, but we've have these ways to think through things. Oh, go ahead. Did you say something? No, you go ahead. That was it. I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, so I was just some delay, like one, it was just taking me back to, okay, just war doctrine from a Catholic perspective. Um, and, and honestly, just that whole thing of like getting to the object of the act in moral theology. And it's kind of like how she writes it. I was like, huh, there's a lot of complexity to this story to know the end, to know like the decisions kind of being made in this act in the Harry Potter books, but to say like, wow, is that a morally acceptable act that he did for the time and circumstances? Um, Anyway, so I'm not, we could get into that more. I'm not even, I'm just using it of it. It kind of has come up in my thinking from reading the Harry Potter books. Um, and I think it's an interesting discussion to be refreshed on, especially just in the very complex world that um, 
we live in of how do you get, how do you, even in your own thinking, um, uh, operate with moral clarity from a Catholic perspective. Did you have thoughts on it? I think, um, I think I found the, this is a question. Scott Harder always memorized these things, uh, like the proportionality double effect. I looked up just war theory and I think these are right. Uh, legal authority must be the one that declares war. It, the cause must be just, must be fought with the, a good intention. In other words, not to kill the enemy, but for restoring peace must be a last resort. Uh, only sufficient force must be involved and civilians must not be involved. And then proportionality or like uh, likelihood of success. Yeah, the outcome has to be greater than yeah. the evil. <clears throat> right, right. And then double effect. Do you guys remember all those? Double. Um, when you, what, I don't know what you mean by all those. I do know. The, I, I remember the double conditions, effect. The conditions mm -hmm. for double oh, effect. For double effect. Mm -hmm. It's uh, like... Um, the the good that comes from the bad effect so the primary object the moral object what you're talking about has to be good so like in self-defense i'm not killing mm -hmm. the guy who's killing me i am preserving my life or the life of another innocent um and right. it's not from him dying that that good effect comes it's from like stopping the aggression or something uh you can't intend the evil. You have to intend the good. Man, this is seminary review class. That's four conditions of it is. Effect. And I, I, I do would honestly any other thoughts you guys just have on a refresher because I remember even at the time I was like, man, that stuff is actually important to know. But maybe making it a little bit more practical. Of, I mean, I just realized this in my life, let alone the stuff that's happening that you just read about and hear about. But it is so easy to like rationalize and try to justify almost anything, like based on intentions. Yeah. And I know that can't be the case. So it's like, I just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I found in thinking about this, like a desire maybe to have a seminary review class. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, sorry, Doctor Barrett. We know that you're listening, <laughs> our moral theology professor. Right. Yeah, but I, I mean, obviously, there's the object, the intention, and the circumstance that makes the actual individual act moral or not. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, the object of the act is is the act itself grave or is it sinful? And then the intention, what's the motivation behind it, and the circumstance is, uh, well, obviously the the situation around it changes and differs the context of the act itself and I, I remember most of that stuff and like i do actually use that quite a bit in order to categorize when people are asking um, if things are sinful and whatnot I, I don't i don't know specifically i know aquinas gets into a lot of this stuff like the species mm -hmm. and genus of certain actions uh and that is something as well that i would like to know because it seems to help break down types of of moral acts into a more specific way um, that it categorizes them in a way that that you can figure out what's yeah what's right and what's wrong uh, a lot easier. But yeah, that's the the object, the intention, and the circumstance. I don't know. Were you looking for that as well? 
Well, one of the things I'm thinking of is um, that actually I was reflecting on a, like a week or two ago, and I can't remember what caused me to think about it again, but I remembered conversations in seminary about in ethics and morals, like the example of lying to the Nazis that you're hiding Jews in your barn, mm-hmm. whether it's moral to lie in that situation to preserve the life of, and that we, we talked about like there's ways to, um, there's ways to like, to deceive, but not, uh, actually lie. But that seems to me like you're intending to deceive. So, um, while like technically, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of like preserving your own moral uprightness and purity, uh, over and against the obvious good, which is saving these people's lives. So it like those, you know, if the Nazi knocks on your door, he says, do you have any Jews? in your house, you know, like it seems to me so obvious that you lie if you do, um, that all of the ethical stuff, it was like you rarely, when you're making decisions, in other words, are you deducing from first principles, whether or not something is right or wrong? Like your conscience reacts spontaneously to circumstances because your, your conscience is formed beforehand by good acts and by intellectual formation and a habit of doing and choosing the good so that in complex circumstances you can confidently choose. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's still like usually after the fact, or if you're contemplating an act, that's not like in the moment, you know, do I have this surgery even though it will render me infertile or, or whatever. Um, you know, those, those kind of things kind of, get talked about and contemplated before you make the choice. But most moral stuff, I don't know about the Snape situation. Was that a sudden decision? And was Dumbledore doing evil? Was that the question? You're saying like, was mm. his killing of Dumbledore justified? Whoa. I thought Dumbledore was good. He is good. He's complicated, good. dude. Yeah, dude, they're both good. That's the thing. Ah, uh, They're both good. And... So they, he, he does it. Um, I mean, I think you could definitely, I for sure argue that it's not, it's not murder that he commits like he, but he does kill him. Like he directly takes his life. Um, yeah. And, because, and that's, that's a part of a bigger good plan too. Right. To make it even more complicated. Hmm. And it's kind of like, at least in, in the writing, it's definitely seemingly the only way. And so to the point that like Dumbledore has it worked out that he asked Snape to do it um, because it's the only way to kind of keep their spies intact that they they need to stop this great evil that is that is happening. Does Dumbledore know that? Or does he? Yeah, it's his decision. It's it's his plan. It's his plan. So so dang it, man, this is good. There's I got to make a little recommendation here. There's a. Um, an interview that Matt Frad does and he hosts a guy named Father Gregory Pine and Janet Smith and they talk about the morality of can we ever lie and it gets into a lot a lot of these questions and they do a supreme job on it I mean it's a an interesting interesting conversation and Janet Smith is hilarious by the way Um, but what they cover is, yeah, essentially talking about the morality of 
I mean, they, they use the question of, are Nazis at the door? If Nazis are at the door, you're hiding Jews, you know, what do you do? Which is really the, the pinpoint question. But they also get into things like spies, which a spy has an intent to deceive. And yet without the work of spies, um, there's like a lot of a lot of good information and a lot of good things, good outcomes that wouldn't be available unless you had people who were intentionally professionally deceiving you and and that gets into a whole nother question you know is uh yeah because then you still have to hold up the moral good and evil of a certain act and like the belief that you can't do uh you can't do evil that good may come of it and and that's that's the quagmire right there that's we're that's a little rock and hard place Mm mm-hmm but th- that interview is incredibly, incredibly good. I Sounds like we should just uh, dub that and kind of lay that into this episode. <laughs> well, it's like an hour and a half. All right. Yeah, and it gets very, <laughs> very, very complicated, but it's it's just really enjoyable. Well, I do think that um, the error of consequentialism is is important because that's kind of what you're you're saying some of these questions are arising out of Rob is like, why does it seem like there's so much that you can rationalize today and doesn't seem to be a lot of moral clarity about what's the, you know, are you can't do a good that evil may come of or do evil that good may come of it in every circumstance, you know, just because you foresee a good outcome doesn't mean that you have carte blanche to do whatever evil it takes to get there. Um, you know, that was a, paper we had to write in ethics about the atom bomb because so many people would say oh that ended world war ii and saved so many lives mm-hmm. and but you know it also is morally questionable because you're involving non-combatants and you can say well japan had the doctrine of total war so everyone was a combatant mm-hmm. um but you end up yeah with all this splitting hairs but the but the basis the the worldview difference is like well, if if I can see a good, then I can do whatever I want. You know, the same thing with uh, medical ethics, you know, embryonic stem cell research. Well, yeah, this requires us to abort embryos, but look at the good that you can do by that. And, and we just say, well, you can't do that evil. You're directly killing a human life in order that a good may come of it. Um, but certainly those questions are, are complex. Um, well... Yeah, uh, Rob, a question for you. <clears throat> what what are the things in, I guess, in your own decision-making process or even when you're thinking about the Dumbledore-Snape situation that that you return to as, as some of the principles that keep you grounded on, like, what is the Lord willing for me mm-hmm. here? What is the true act of love here? Um, that's a good question. I don't really have them... Uh formulated say it again if you would the question yeah i guess what are the the principal truths or or maybe i'll just what what are some of the relationships that you return to to try and discern what is what is good and what is evil yeah i mean i would say generally speaking um it would be that like very um just in an unbending way holding to every human life has dignity and worth 
and you can't use um yeah you you cannot justify um ends by means by ends you cannot justify means by ends so i would say those are are very operative in how i think at a very very basic level but i mean and maybe it would be a little bit easier on the dumbledore um snape thing because again it's just something maybe a little bit more less general to to talk about in a theoretical way but it was like they i mean i think you would argue that they are legitimately at war um in in the story they you know it's there are um like all kinds of uh circumstances around it where it it does seem like um the only thing to to be done and and the person himself like dumbledore is not only what you would label as a combatant in in the war that is this happening but again like it's his it's his plan um in it so there's a certain i guess like freedom that you would say there but it also involves like the direct taking of of that life and i remember and it, it's just kind of like man i i remember thinking about this stuff and i haven't thought about it in those terms i remember i mean asking um you know a moral theologian once and just trying to like wrap my brain around the complexity of this stuff because it's it's like it's hard to to think about and so i remember asking you know hey so are there situations where you would have um sorry for like the brashness on this but where you would have like a situation of war where someone like a sniper would be in a shoot to kill situation where like the intent on the shot would be to kill the combatant like could that be a moral act and the answer was yes like there are possible the possibility for the conditions to be met for that are possible and it's just like whoa yeah that i just it's just complex anyway so it's it's just kind of like stirred all that stuff up in in me around this particular story that i'm reading um but it's also like man to have some clarity I and mean, it's kind of baron's whole thing too coming up of like you know he always raged against the the seminarian complaints of like Oh, we shouldn't read all of this complex. Like, they never ask us about Chalcedon in the parish. Yeah, like we shouldn't, <laughs> you know, have to read all this like complex stuff and all that. You know, we just want to be with the the people and um and he just thought that was nonsense because like yeah, you might not use Chalcedon and like all all these nuances and hair splitting in every homily or anything like that, but you better know it because it's going to come up and again you might not cite it in the explanation but you darn well better know it yeah so it's a part of the conversation whether you know it or not yep well and you know i i think that there is i totally agree with that obviously i would never take issue with baron's idea that but there's still i think what people experience out in the parish is that um like abstract ideas and universal principles don't often 
apply very clearly to people's lives. But nevertheless, you need you need to have those um, kind of in place so long as they don't become a crutch because the intention part, like the personalism of it, your own subjective experience of you as a moral actor, um, <clears throat> I think you can you can turn those principles into idols and that like liberate you from responsibility for your own actions. So for example, I think the sniper, if you Mike, as a chaplain, hear the confession of a sniper who feels bad about what he's done, even though it was an order, like objectively this, you know, fit all the use in bellow justice in war principles and everything there's still the experience of taking a human life right that you know you you are responsible you feel the weight of of responsibility for your actions much more in those kind of intense moral quandaries um and it's not enough to just say well we have a we have a little principle here that says that was fine you know you still have to wrestle with right that fact that you did this um, you pulled the trigger and someone died. Um, and I totally, um, I'm not saying that it's not true that, that that can be moral and just saying that the weight of it is, uh, and, and I think that's why the church has these things so that we can unburden people's consciences because living in a complex world, um, <clears throat> you know, this comes up with in current events, you know, can you, uh, can you do this even though there's some evil kind of mixed in there, um, even though good is coming of it, uh, that you can't, you cannot operate in the world without some cooperation or countenancing or a, apparent condoning of evil actions because we live in a world fall, that's fallen and yeah. corrupted by sin. Um, but that's where I think as a priest why like the soul doctor analogy of, of bishop baron why you need to know all the all of the background information is so that you can speak very clearly and with authority not your own authority but the church's authority on what god expects of people you know yeah no i think the the point that you raise is the boots on the ground like subjective experience of individuals and the objective moral principles that the church teaches, they can sometimes feel super duper disconnected. But, you know, inherent in Bishop Barron's soul doctor thing is the fact that they are. That's why you need to know the the big picture stuff so that then you can apply it well to the little picture, like to the to the individual circumstance. And I mean, I, I, I preached a homily on sort of that idea not too long ago um, about how disconnected sometimes Lent can feel from love for God. And so it's like, yeah, we follow all these moral norms. We follow all these, you know, we're, we're practicing. Like I can't eat chocolate for 40 days. Why? Because I love Jesus. Like <laughs> that connection isn't immediately evident. And I, I had a similar experience in, in the military. Like when I joined the army, I remember, um, like trying to learn how to wear the uniform, you know, and trying to figure out how to tie my boots and get my blouse on right and get my patches all squared away and all this stuff. And a grown man was on the ground screaming at my boot 
because I didn't have my shoelace tucked in correctly. So I was like out of uniform. And here's an adult, like a grown man who I respect, yelling at my shoelace. I'm like, this is insane. But somehow this is connected to the idea of like just war theory, to the principle of self-defense or the, the double effect and um, connected to all these bigger picture ideas and guy yelling at my boot on the ground and like the the moral freedom and the moral responsibility to defend innocent life like those two things are not immediately evident that that they're connected but but they are and so having somebody who can yeah bind those two things together and show how they are connected hmm. i think is super important um or like we would just march around just here walk around in that field for five hours why because we want to have a military that's going to, you know, defend our, defend our people, defend and fight for justice and fight for the innocent. And you're like, it's not really that clear how walking around in a parking lot or in a field for five hours helps you to do that. But it does, it is connected. I don't yeah. know if that was a, a little, I don't know if that helps or if that was a little bit of a tangent. I think it but. totally does. Uh, it gets to the, also the question of like virtual intention or, the overarching intention, like where my, my intent is to get to Berlin or something and that I have to make all sorts of little, little decisions on the way there, like get in the Uber, get in the plane, you know, check my bag, eat the sandwich in the airport. Like all, all of those things are part of the big decision and action of going to Berlin. Um, but like in something like defend the country, defend freedom, um, to fight for the innocent. It's hard to see how tucking your shoelace into your boot is defending the innocent, but it, it is somehow. Um, and that maybe is a, a nice rubric for all of like why we act, why giving up chocolate is loving Jesus is like, cause all of our actions, our whole overarching intent is go to heaven. Um, live with Jesus forever. And what we're doing as priests, while you're a chaplain in the army, or I'm a chaplain here at the university or your parish priest is, um, to help souls get to heaven. And the reason they ask us these questions about the smaller things, some, I mean, not to denigrate, some of them are big things, but there are still only an element of the choice of surrendering your life to Christ so that you may be saved. Um, for that reason, it's hard to, it's hard always to see the connection between like, why can't I do this? Why would God forbid this action? This feels natural or this makes sense in this situation. Um, you know, one thing I'm thinking of, I don't want to muddy the waters, but you know, that it's Holy Thursday and I'm, I'm thinking about the last supper and, uh, I remember re reading or hearing somewhere that there were some scripture scholars that thought Judas was trying to kind of stimulate the, the coming of the kingdom through his betrayal. Like there, there is a chance that he had some good intention. He wasn't just like suddenly uh, just trying to kill Jesus uh, after being his friend for three years that like he had a misguided interpretation of what the Messiah thing was going to look like. And he was trying to like accelerate it on his own terms. Yeah, I've like, never heard that before. Have you ever heard that, Rob? No, no. That's pretty wild. 
yeah, like he still had this vision of the warrior king and that if if he brought the soldiers out to try to arrest Jesus, like Jesus would just mow them all down and uh, bring the kingdom back to Judah. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't find it, but um, I mean, it's it's kind of similar to the the question we're asking with Dumbledore and Snape, but it seems to me like the scriptures, all four gospels are unanimous in saying that Judas did an evil act and his own subjective experience of that afterwards um, gives evidence of that, that he, he did not act with a good intention. Um, you know, even if you could rationalize it somehow, I mean, Jesus says unequivocally, it would be better for him not to have been born. I don't know that he talks like that, that gravely to any of them. Even the Pharisees have a chance at redemption. Yeah. The only thing close to it is when he talks about leading the children away from the kingdom. The millstone, yeah. The millstone around the neck. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and this is something that Pine and Dr. Jan Smith get into in their conversation, but that the moral law has... Um, not just more gray area in it, but that because it is a fallen world, there are certain things that are not are not going to happen in heaven. But that doesn't mean that they're morally evil. So there, there's almost like a, an expanded moral law that f- that helps us to navigate a fallen moral moral world. It's like before the fall and in heaven, there would be no need for the principle of double effect because the act of protecting your life by taking another life that just would never, that would never be. And and yet there's something here in the fallen world that has, has had to expand um, our morality in a way that allows for good to be present even in sinful or imperfect situations, you know? And, and it makes me think of, you know, it's, it's Barron's thing on silence. It's like, well, when we look at the church, who are the saints? Who are the, who are the images? Who are the people filled with God's love that we revere and say like, they, they really lived like saints, not just they did what was, Mm. they didn't just do the right thing, but like they gave their life for a certain truth and they lived heroic virtue. You know, we look at guys like Franz Jägerstadter or the early martyrs who like, yeah, he, he does the church condemn every single person that was forcibly uh, made to fight for the Nazis? Like, no, but does the church exalt the guy who refused to give his word to a killer. Yeah. And like, that's a tough, that's a tough little conundrum right there as well. Well, and it's interesting because when I watched that movie, you know, the priest is there and Jägerstadter is, is, I don't know if he seeks counsel from him directly, but the priest basically just walks with him through the whole thing and never obliges him to, to do what he did, but he also doesn't, he almost joins in the chorus of voices that are like, just cross your fingers behind your back and sign the, sign the letter. You don't have to mean it. Um, but 
there's there's a situation right there like would you oblige your people to to stand up and and die rather than submit to this evil um and it's one thing if it's like you you're colby or something in the concentration camps making a, a heroic act that itself is only possible by the grace of god to be that selfless but to oblige someone else there's a weight to it that's that's extreme you know and it would give me pause i would you know if i were in that situation in austria in 1940 whatever do you preach and tell your people our town won't our town won't cooperate even if it means we're all going to prison and all getting our heads chopped off you know if you do that you better be willing to lead <laughs> you know by example but Mm, good triduum talk. There you go. I think we just took a complicated topic and made it even more <laughs> complicated. Yeah, if you want the truth on this in a clear way, I'll put in the show notes the Matt Frad podcast with Janet Smith. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's incredibly good. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't know. There's something, um, even in that, I'm sure there's so much more clarity in that particular cast. But then also, I mean, it's just true that when you get to really complex things, you you can argue and you can disagree right. on, on certain things as as well. I remember um, having disagreements with, with fellow seminarians, classmates after classes where we talk about this stuff. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very passionate. Yeah. Um, so I'm appreciative to flesh it out, um, a little bit and there is, um, and yeah, in so many different ways of, um, yeah, like the action of the priest in a hidden life or, um, yeah, I mean, it, it almost be fun. Like at some point Mets, I know you've read the, the HPs, but I would love to hear your thoughts on Snape killing Dumbledore from this perspective of like, what's the, yeah. Is do it you just already know how the last one ends, Rob? I do. Mm-hmm. So everything works out like it, the, the plan works. Oh yeah, dude. It's, it's a great, it's a great story how it all comes together. It's very um, detailed and, you know, it's just kind of this whole like other world that, um, that she creates and, um, I mean, Snape and Dumbledore are the two, it's, it's the epic, the epic story is the narrative of Harry Potter, certainly. Um, but the, the two, like, I would, I would call like most courageous and heroic figures in the book are Snape and Dumbledore. Um, at least in the, how the story is portrayed. Would you agree, Mets? Ugh. I Snape is tough. Mm-hmm. Snape is tough. Um, I was shocked in reading him how courageous Harry is. I mean, yeah. obviously it's his story. Um, yeah, he's would, the hero for sure. Right. I, I would consent to Dumbledore. I'd have to think about Snape. Man, that's that's hard. I don't know. I don't know. Let me let me sit on it because she does a great job of 
um, putting within each character like some sort of a, that same moral bind where you're mm-hmm. like, okay, they have a reason for doing what they're doing. I, I get their intentions and their circumstances. Um, and I, but I don't know how to weigh on it, you know? Like even Dumbledore with the stuff mm-hmm. with his sister. I'm like, why'd you do that? He was just this awesome ideal character who was so good. Uh, and then Snape, like all of his wickedness, it gets turned with uh, Harry's father and his his romantic relationship and, and love for Harry's mom. You're like, oh, I get that too. Like this, this guy's motivated by love and, and doing the right thing. And so... She she does a good job of making the characters complex and human. Mm-hmm. So I I'd have to think about it. Yeah, but but it's also not you know, and maybe the balance there is to say it's not uh, everything isn't just black and white, which I think that that's like a tough lesson to learn in seminary. But then as well, you can't just say like, well, things are just gray, so you never know. And so trying to take both of those things and and get down to something more concrete um, because there's always an invitation to love in front of you. So it's like, okay, what, what does authentic love look like right here? You know, just throwing your hands up and saying, you never know, um, you know, lends, and maybe this is just personal. It lends a little bit too far to the, to the relativistic side. So I, I like the idea of trying to pin something down a little bit more concrete so that you can respect the gray, but then also come up with some sort of legitimate conclusion that, you know, you're not just rationalizing everything away because we're wicked good at that. Well, you guys got to go. Well, happy priesthood day guys. Yeah. You as well. I was reading, uh, I'm teaching later today, the uh, class on Corbone, Wellspring of Worship, and I was glancing at uh, the stuff we read for today was just uh, really beautiful. I was praying with it this morning in Holy Hour. Maybe I can just share this uh, this paragraph real quick before we leave. It's a little reflection. What do you think? Do it. Do it, man. The outstreaming of the mystery of the liturgy into the rest of life begins in prayer. And the point where the river of life rises as a wellspring in the midst of human existence is the heart. If we, res- if we resolve to pray humbly and in self-surrender to the spirit, our entire being descends into our heart and is gathered up in its source. The heart is for us the existential starting point of the entire movement of the liturgy, both celebrated and lived. It says, only, in this, only this divine presence can be the true life of man, because it alone fills the heart by deepening the heart's desire. It alone does not delude the heart by satiating it, but rather expands it by drawing it. I was just left like you're talking about chocolate and loving Jesus and like the whole point of fasting and prayer and almsgiving renunciation is like our hearts. I was just reflecting this morning on how much I want to satiate my heart. The heart is full of desires and wants to be pleased and wants to be at rest, but getting into the love of the Trinity, um, the heart of the mystery of what's happening in these days and our whole lives as Christians, it's like something Gerald May said in the Addiction and Grace book that I go back to too, is you need to learn to love your longing. 
that in a way the reason the Christian life is dynamic and why heaven won't be boring isn't because there's no point. It's not like, oh, if I just had enough chocolate, then I would be, I would feel the rest I'm looking for. Like the reason we give those up is because we, uh, choose to let our hearts long and go after the thing that doesn't satiate our heart, but makes it want even more. Hmm. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's a scary place to be. But it's where we're going, dudes. It's going to be dope. Onwards and upwards. Excelsior. <laughs> Got a song coming out tomorrow. Good Friday. It's also my mom's birthday tomorrow. So that's part of the reason. Nice. And it's somebody else's birthday tomorrow. Wayne, Father Wayne Stock. <laughs> <laughs> is it Father Wayne Stock? It is. It is. I thought it was your birthday tomorrow. That's both. Oh, is it? Is it? Come on. Happy birthday to you. No, we should do... Can we sing the Las Mañanitas? Las Mañanitas. All five verses. <laughs> Happy birthday, Rob. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Glad you were born. Old fart. Yeah. Thanks. All right. All right, see ya. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisc, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.